Welcome to the Antioch Sheffield podcast. We are so glad that you can join us for today's message, which is brought to you by Pastor Todd Roberts. For more information about Antioch Sheffield, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk. Morning, church. Good to see you this morning. All right. Well, I want to start by telling you a story this morning about one of the clearest rebukes I have ever received from the Lord. Um, when I, and it came when I was a uh, fresher in my first year at uni. And um, the uni that I went to required all freshers to live on campus, which meant that, you know, American universities, they've got, you know, big campuses, and they've, they've also got these enormous monstrosities called dormitories. And all freshers were allowed, to, were required to live in one of the on-campus dormitories. I'm not sure who thought this was a good idea to put a bunch of hundreds of 18-year-olds living on their own for the first time in their life in a big building there all together. Um, it was an experience. Um, I could tell you some stories about what that was like, but uh, the, the, the real make or break for many people in their, uh, their, fresher, their, year, their first year at uni was who you roomed with. Because these dormitories were uh, filled with hundreds of little two and three bedrooms, and who you roomed with would be the make or break of your year for many people. And so if you knew someone going into university that you liked well enough to, to live with them, that was nice. At least that took some of the unknown out of the equation. But if you didn't know someone, then you had to go potluck, is what they called it. And basically, the university would just assign you a person. I think you, maybe you put some preferences down, but it was basically at random. And uh, I, when I filled out my housing forms for university, didn't really know anybody that was going to be going to university, the, the one I was going to, so I, I just went potluck. And I have to confess, I was a little bit nervous about this. You know, I thought, oh gosh, I don't know how I feel about like having at least one or two other flatmates that, that I don't know, and, and I'm going to spend the next nine months living in close proximity to them. Um, but I tried to stay optimistic. I tried to stay hopeful. I was like, well, who knows? Like, this could turn out to be amazing. This person could end up being my best friend. This person could end up being, like, my, my, the best man at my wedding and, and the godparent to my children. We could go into business together. I mean, who knows what great things await me with this person that I'm going to be assigned as my flatmate. But it didn't quite turn out that way. Um, and uh, not long into my year at uni, I, I realized very, very quickly that we were very different individuals. We had different likes, different dislikes, different taste in music, different schedules, different preferences, different expectations. We were just really, really different. Now, in hindsight, I look back and I realize a lot of these things weren't wrong about this guy. It's just different, you know? I mean, we just had to, it's okay that we had differences, but, but everything he did annoyed me so much. I mean, he exposed pet peeves I didn't even know I had. And so, I, you know, I was so, I just could not stand this guy. And he just, and I was, felt so justified in my dislike of him because he just kept doing all these things that I considered to be so incredibly annoying. Anybody ever, you know, had one of those people in their lives? A few of you? Yeah. Okay. So you can, you can relate to me. It was good because I'm going to need grace from you as I continue with this story. Um, and, and, 
you know, the tension just kind of kept building. It started really on, you know, the beginning, and then six weeks into my first year at uni, the tension was at a boiling point, and it just on this day, on at one Sunday morning, it spectacularly boiled over. Now, being the good upstanding, godly Christian man that I am, I had set my alarm early for church on this Sunday morning so I could get up early and go to church because, you know, that's what a Christian is supposed to do, right? You know, we're all here in church this morning. It's a good thing to do, so I set my alarm early. However, I was a big fan of the snooze button. Any, any snooze button fans in here? Yeah, okay, so I'm not alone. You know, I, I, I had no problem at all with hitting that snooze button two or three or seven or eight times. And, you know, I, that was just part of my morning routine, right? Right? I just didn't really factor in that that may not be the most considerate thing to do when you've got somebody sleeping six feet away from you. I, I don't know if I just didn't care or if I just didn't think about it, but, but whatever the case, on this particular Sunday morning, my alarm went off for church and, and just, you know, I used my tried and true method of bam, hit that snooze button and go back to sleep. But shortly after I did that, my flatmate said to me, he said, uh, are you going to get up? And I, I thought, you know, well, I, I just grunted and didn't pretend and just went, didn't move, pretend to go back to sleep. And I tried to go back to sleep. And then, you know, about 30 seconds later, he said, hey, are you going to get up? And I thought, I'll just pretend like I'm asleep and then maybe he'll leave me alone. And then he asked again, hey, hey, Todd, are you going to get up? I pretended to be asleep, and he kept asking, and I kept pretending. But as he kept asking, he kept asking, kept asking, I kept getting madder and madder and madder. And then finally, he said, Todd, you need to get up now. And that did it. Who did this guy think he was? My mother? And I like jumped out of bed, and I said, fine, I'm up. Are you happy? And stormed out of the room and slammed the door for good measure. What a godly man I was. Such an embarrassing story to tell. Anyway, so I, you know, being this godly man, got ready for church. You know, I didn't, I didn't go back in to like sort things out or repent or anything. I got ready for church and I got my Bible and I went down to the cafeteria, by golly, and I was going to have breakfast and I was going to read the Bible, hopefully looking for some sort of like wrath of God passage to justify my anger. Anybody ever read the Bible and had something jump off the page at you? Yeah, God had an ambush set up for me. I, I, I opened my Bible, and I, don't, I think my eyes, as I remember it, my eyes went right to this passage as if it had been Holy Spirit highlighted for me on the page. And, and I, I read from this passage and just kind of felt my stomach go, oh, here's what it says. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, Humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Yeah, busted. <laughs> I felt uh, so busted in that moment, and I'll tell you what, I have never forgotten that rebuke from the Lord. 
And I have to say, you know, we use the word rebuke and we think it's a bad thing. Hebrews tells us that God rebukes those he loves. And I, I have to say in that moment, I kind of felt God smile in, that, in, in, in his love for me, even as he was correcting me and saying, son, son, you're, you're better than this. You, 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 you know, this is not the way of Jesus. You need to, you need to show your, your flatmate forgiveness. You need to clothe yourself with love. Clothe yourself with love. You know, over the course of my life, I have had the privilege of being able to travel all over the world. And one of the things I love about traveling is, you know, you get to see different cultures, different people, different uh, uh, societies and how they operate. And one of the things that, that you quickly learn is how to, that people's appearance often tells you a lot about their faith, their worldview. So, for example, a Muslim man often has a beard. Uh, the more devout ones, they carry these, uh, these strings of beads around that they are constantly fingering that are the 99 names, to remind them of the 99 names of God in Islam. Uh, Muslim women, they wear the hijab often, the head covering. Uh, 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 a Hindu woman often has a red dot on, in the middle of her forehead. A, a Buddhist monk wears a bright orange robe. Uh, Jewish men, Orthodox Jewish men, often grow their hair long on the sides of their heads, and they wear a skull cap called a kippah. Uh, uh, let's see, uh, Sikhs, they often grow their hair long and wear a turban. And so when you see one of these people, you, you kind of know pretty quickly, well, that, that, that person's a Sikh, that person is Jewish, that person's a Muslim. And you can tell a lot about them by their external appearance. But Scripture doesn't mandate any sort of universal external appearance for us as Christians. But what it does mandate is that we should clothe ourselves in love. Love is meant to be the distinguishing trait for Christians. It's, it is the mark, the distinguishing mark for Jesus's followers. We are to be clothed in love. This is what Jesus told his disciples at the end of the Last Supper as he was getting ready to go to the cross. These are his last words to them before facing the cross. He says, so I am now giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. You know, in the autumn, we talked extensively about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And in this passage, Jesus is telling us what it means or what, what, what should distinguish his disciples, and it's love. He's saying the thing that they should be known for more than anything is the way that they love one another. Therefore, the Christian life, the, the, the life of being a disciple or a follower of Jesus can be described as a lifelong commitment of learning how to love, which is why this morning we're beginning a new series that I am entitling Learning to Love. The goal of this series is to help you learn to love well, to learn what hinders love as well as what it looks like to, to love well. And I want it to be said of us as a church that, that, that we are a church of people who love each other well who have healthy relationships. I, I want us to be the kind of people that aren't sloppy with their relationships, but the kind of people who put other people before themselves, who, who make other people feel safe, who, the kind of people who forgive and don't allow bitterness and resentment to poison their relationships, the kind of people who 
own their own mistakes and apologize. The kind of people who know how to extend grace and mercy to others when they make a mistake. The kind of people who know how to see the best in others even when they aren't at their best. The kind of people who see differences in race and ethnicity and education and class as something to celebrate, not something to divide over. I want us to be the kind of people who can disagree with one another, but still love each other and be for each other even after disagreements. I want us to be the kind of people who love each other enough to be honest with one another, being willing to you know, confess our sins, to admit our faults and our struggles and our challenges and our trials. Maybe I want us to be the kind of people who are honest enough and love other people enough that we're willing to go to them and say, hey, this thing that you're doing, it's hurting you and it's hurting other people. I want us to be the kind of people who can have fun together, who can cry together, who can share their possessions with one another. And I know all that sounds really idealistic, pie-in-the-sky thinking. I mean, who doesn't want this stuff? But, but it, it's not impossible. In fact, we're told that the early church experienced something like this. In Acts 2, we're told about the early church, and it says this about them. It says that all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So there's something about Christianity. There's something about following Jesus that makes this possible. This is what happens when a community of people decides, hey, we're going to start living the two great commandments, to love God wholeheartedly and to love one another wholeheartedly. When we do that, this is what results. And, and when we learn to love, when we have a healthy community, you know, it is, it is such a rare thing in this world that it is so attractive to people. Healthy community, people that really love one another, is the most attractive thing in the world. And I think that's what happened with the early church. The, the, the people around them, they weren't necessarily impressed with their theology. I think at first blush, they, they, they were thinking, your, your theology is a bit weird. But what they were seeing was the outworking of their theology and the way that they loved each other. And it was so compelling and it was so attractive that they were like, I want to be part of that community. Th that community is better than my community. These people love like I've never seen love before and I want to be a part of it. And so they jump in. You see, our love for one another is one of the greatest evangelistic tools that we have. But the opposite is also true. Our lack of love for one another is one of the greatest, greatest witnesses against the gospel. See, it matters how you treat people. It matters how you treat people inside the church, and it matters how you treat people outside the church. But we can't be sloppy with our relationships. We've got to learn to be intentional and learn how to love one another well. That is the journey of the Christian life. It is meant to be the distinguishing mark in our life. So I hope that, that every year you are growing, as you follow Jesus, you are growing in your ability to love your neighbor as yourself. But we all know that this kind of love isn't easy. It doesn't just happen. It isn't natural for us. 
And in the, you know, the 2,000-year history of the church, I'm sad to say that it seems like the community we read about in Acts was the exception more than the rule. And for many people, you know, their experience of church has been anything but loving. They felt judged, they felt accused, they felt all these different things. And, and if that's been your experience, I just want to say as a church leader, I am so sorry that the church has fallen short. The church is made up of imperfect and broken people, but that doesn't change the goal. The goal is to learn to love like Jesus loved. But why is that so hard for us? I mean, there's obvious answers like, you know, sin, selfishness, dysfunctional styles of relating, our personal brokenness. And we're, we're going to look at all of those things in the course of this series. But today I want to focus on one of the myths that I think so undermines our ability to love here in the 21st century, and it's the myth that love is a feeling. Love is a feeling, right? You know, if you were to ask the average person on the street, what comes to mind when, you say, when, when, when I say the word love? I think they would respond, it's a feeling. It's a, it's a warm feeling that, that kind of wells up within us towards someone. And it's almost like we can't help it. It's like an instinct. Like if you, if you like someone, if you're attracted to someone, if you, if you feel an affinity for someone, you, you feel loving towards them. But if you don't like them or if you're not attracted to them, if you don't click with them, then you, then you don't feel loving towards them. But the notion that love is a feeling comes more from Hollywood than it does the Bible. And the problem with this way of thinking is that it makes our loving actions, our actions dependent upon our feelings. And how many of you know that our feelings are fickle? You know, they, they will change from hour to hour, from day to day. And, and so if our feelings, if our love is based on our feeling of love towards someone, then our love is going to be shallow and it's going to be fickle. I was reading about a study that some researchers did to try to explore uh, some of the, the biochemistry behind romantic love. And I'm not just to be clear, this, this series isn't just about romantic love. This is all about all different kinds of love, love for friends, love for family, loving your neighbor, that kind of thing. But this particular study was focused on romantic love, and it was trying to figure out what is it that, you know, the, the warm fuzzies that we feel when we first fall in love. You know, when you watch that movie the, the, where, you know, you've got the meat cute, and then, you know, you watch them get together, and we all love that. And what, what are those emotions that are going on? What's the biochemistry behind that? And they've discovered this uh, chemical called phenylethylamine, I hope I said that right, or PEA, and it's this chemical that's released when you are falling, when you're in the early days of a romance with somebody. It's the, that euphoric feeling that you feel when you're just falling in love. And it's, and it's so pleasurable and it's addicting. And that's why we as a culture, we love to talk about the early stages of a romance, right? We love to glorify how people come together and, you know, become a couple and all that. But the interesting thing is these researchers found that after about four years of a relationship, your body your body's production of PEA begins to tail off. And, and eventually, just, it, it stops almost entirely. And it's no coincidence, then, that the peak year of divorce is the fourth year. What happens is, it seems like God has given us this chemical that allows us to, to really, in some ways, you know, you know how they say love is blind, and when you first meet somebody, you, know, you can't see anything wrong with them. You just enjoy being with them. And, and, and you have four years to really kind of establish a deeper, more substantive relationship, because eventually those chemicals kind of fade away and puppy love becomes doggy breath. And if you haven't established a deeper form of love, 
then the relationship is in trouble. <laughs> so that's an example for marriage, but, but that's true for any relationship. If we believe that the, the, love, that the myth that love is based on feelings, our love is going to remain shallow and it's going to remain fickle and it's never going to develop into the kind of love that Jesus is talking about. But what is the kind of love that Jesus is talking about? In order to answer that question, I need to give you a very brief Greek lesson. I know that's not really what you got up for this morning. Like, oh, I hope we get to do some Greek today. But uh, it is actually important in this, and I'll, and I'll make this as brief and as interesting as possible. But, uh, but it is important for us to understand that because we're limited somewhat. Part of the problem in our inability to love stems from a limitation in the English language. We have one word for love. And we apply it all over the place. We love our spouses. We love God. We love food. We love our cat. We love our, that car that we don't even own. I love that car. You know, we, we, we love a piece of clothing. We love our meal. We love a good coffee. We love all kinds of things. That word is used all over the place. And I think it creates a bit of confusion, and it feeds into this idea that love is about feelings, because you know, like if we love a good coffee, we just, you know, we're reacting to the taste of it, right? You know, we enjoy the experience of it, and there's that feeling. But, but is that what Jesus is talking about here? Now, the New Testament is written in Greek, and it's a very specific and precise language. And so uh, the, the, the Greeks, they had four different words for love. So I want to just briefly explain what those are and, and see how they differentiated different types of love. Now, the first one is eros. Eros is the physical dimension of love. It's talking about passion and desire and attraction. This is where we get the English word erotic from, right? And, and eros is good. God created us with this capacity and this capability to be attracted to one another. But the problem is, is that that kind of love can't sustain a relationship for the long haul. Eros comes and eros goes. I think a lot of us, I think I probably thought growing up, you know, once I meet my wife and we get married, then it's just going to be just, you know, a, a, a bed of sunshine the whole time. And we're just going to float along, and it's all just going to be these euphoric feelings. And, and, and it's not. Anybody that's been married for, for any duration of time tells you there's, there's good times, there's hard times, there's challenges, and, and there's those times when those emotions are there, and there's times when they're not. That doesn't mean you have a bad marriage. That's just life. That's reality. So, Eros comes and it goes, and the qualities that, that attract us to one another initially, they have a way of changing. Another word they have is phileo, which is the love of friends and equals. This is where, this is the word you'd use for your best friend. I love my friend. They're, they're amazing. You know, this is where the word, uh, the, the city Philadelphia is, they, they borrowed this for its name, the city of brotherly love, right? And, and this, this would describe the warm affection that you have for a friend. So in the Bible, David and Jonathan, they had that phileo love for one another. Um, another, another word is storge. Storge is the love mostly used in the love of uh, parents for their children. And it, this is described as the most natural of loves. It's, it's genetically programmed and hardwired into us. And so this kind of love isn't as susceptible to the behavior of the object of love. You know, so this is why mothers can keep loving their kids and caring for their kids even when their kids are acting uh, like, you know, little banshees. You know, they, they keep loving their kids anyway. That's storge love. And finally, there is agape. 
Agape is unconditional love. This is the love that's just used to describe the love of God. It's the greatest of loves. And it doesn't so much refer to love that is rooted in affection or feelings, but it's a, it's a moral goodwill. It's, it's not a love based on feelings. It's an act of the will that chooses to love regardless of feelings and regardless of the response of the object of your love. It's, it's selfless, it's sacrificial, and it's unconditional. It's, it's the love that God has for us, and it's the love that we have for God and that we are called to have for our neighbor. And our culture, you know, it's the opposite of what our culture wants us to do. You know, our culture teaches us to ask everyone and everything, like, how can you meet my need? Whereas agape love looks at someone and says, how can I meet your need? This is the kind of love that Jesus was talking about. This is the kind of love that, that Jesus is referring to in that passage in John uh, 13. Let's look at it again. So just reading it this way, so, so now I'm giving you a new commandment, Jesus says. Love, agape each other. Just as I have agaped you, you should agape each other. Your love, your agape for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. This is the kind of love that Jesus is calling us to. That kind of love that, that isn't based on our feelings, but a kind of love that transcends our feelings. He's saying you got, you got to love each other sacrificially. You got to love each other unconditionally. You got to love each other regardless of whether you feel loving towards them or not. Now, as I said earlier, this kind of love, that doesn't just happen. That doesn't come easily to us. It, it sounds really far-fetched. You know, it's a nice concept, but actually applying it, I think we all know that's pretty difficult. So how do we love others? How do we agape others? How do we obey this commandment that Jesus has given us? In our culture, you know, that bases our love on feelings, how do we bypass our feelings to demonstrate the love that Jesus has commanded us to do? And this is, this is a command. You know, Jesus wasn't saying, hey, if you feel like it, you should love people this way. Feelings are something to be overcome. Unloving feelings are something to be overcome, not an excuse to disobey. So how do we overcome this? Well, C.S. Lewis had something really interesting to say about this in his book on uh, mere Christianity, in which there's a chapter on this type of love. And he makes this statement. He says, the rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. What do you think about that? That's a... Uh, that's kind of an offensive concept in our culture. He's saying, in other words, don't wait until you feel loving to act loving. Do whatever it takes, uh, do whatever love requires of you, whether you feel it or not. And, and that is such an offensive idea in our culture. You know, that's, this is the whole fake it till you make it thing. We, we hate that idea. If, if you don't feel it, because we, we think, you know, if you're not feeling something, then you shouldn't do it because it's inauthentic, it's a lie, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sham, it's not real. But that's actually not true. You know, often choosing to love someone in spite of what you're feeling is a greater demonstration of love than, than just going with whatever you're feeling in that moment. If we base our love on whatever we're feeling in that moment, we're going to wind up in all kinds of ditches, I promise you. You know, think about how often you make the choice to love someone in spite of what you're feeling. Like, so for example, you know, what do you feel when you're wronged or betrayed by someone? 
We feel anger. We feel a desire for vengeance, right? And so if you make the choice to obey what the Scriptures say and love your enemies and forgive those who trespass against you as the Lord has forgiven you, is, is that inauthentic even though you're angry, even though you don't feel loving, even though you don't feel forgiving? Or is that a demonstration of your love for them? Or, or, or think about, uh, you know, when your flatmate is triggering every pet peeve you never knew you had, for example. Uh, you know, hopefully you don't make the same choice I did and lash out in anger. Hopefully, you make, if you make the choice instead to show them kindness and mercy and be patient with them as that scripture was exhorting me to do, is that inauthentic? I mean, I was saying, I would say I was acting out of my feelings that day, right? When I lashed out at my flatmate, I was following my feelings, but it led to a ditch. And my poor flatmate, God bless him, you know, he, he got the wrath of my true feelings in that moment. And I had to go back and repent to him later. And we did patch it up, by the way. We did make it through that whole year. But, you know, what, what had been inauthentic of me to say, you know what, I'm going to show this guy patience. I'm going to show this guy kindness. I'm going to forgive him for the ways that, that he might not be meeting my needs as his flatmate. What do you do when somebody's in trouble and needs your help? They, maybe somebody asks you to help them, you know, they're, they're, their car's broken down or something like that, and, and you're, they're, they're calling on you to come help them, and maybe you were really tired and you don't want to go out and help, or maybe you had a big agenda of things you wanted to do and this is a disruption to your schedule. Is it inauthentic for you to go and help them anyway? Or is that a demonstration of how much you love to put everything aside and go and serve them? So choosing to love somebody in spite of your feelings isn't inauthentic at all. It is, it is a greater form of love. So if I could summarize what C.S. Lewis is saying, and if I could summarize what I'm challenging you to do today, uh, it's a phrase I heard from the author, the author Greg Morse, and, and I like how he said it. I think that we should fake it until he makes it. Now, I know we hate that phrase, fake it till you make it, but this isn't that phrase. This is fake it until he makes it. So what I mean by that is that we act loving until God enables us to feel loving. Whether or not you feel loving towards someone, instead of waiting to act until those feelings of love emerge in you, we can use our God-given imagination and we can use our will to make the volitional choice to actually love the people that God has put in front of us. So, so what if you use your imagination and you, know, you, you thought of like, what would I do just asking God, what would I do if I had loving feelings towards this person that annoys me or is, has hurt me or whatever? Would I, you know, for example, would I get off the couch and apologize to my wife in that scenario? Yeah, that's probably the loving thing to do. Would, would I call my family member who I haven't spoken to in years? That's probably the loving thing to do. Would I ask my neighbor over for dinner that maybe I, I have a hard time with? I mean, we just ask ourselves the question, what does love require, me, uh, require of me in this situation? And then we do it. But listen to what C.S. Lewis goes on to say. He says this, As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking them more and more. In other words, when you act loving towards someone, you begin to feel loving towards someone. When you act loving towards someone in faith, asking God, Lord, help me, help me to love this person, God begins to change your heart and you begin to feel loving towards them. 
But we often get it backwards. We, if we don't feel loving towards someone, we don't act loving towards them. And then the more we don't act loving, the more we dislike that person, and, and the vicious cycle just keeps continuing. And this could be a lifeline for some of you in your marriages. You know, you may not feel loving towards your spouse, but what if today you made the choice to do something loving for your spouse, whether you feel like it or not? And watch what happens as you begin to act as if you love them. Watch how God begins to change your heart. You see, faking it until He makes that love real. And really, this isn't faking it. This is choosing to align yourself with your identity in Jesus. Actually, He has given His love to you. He has, he's given you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces love, joy, peace, patience, all those kinds of things. The very first one is love. And so if you've got love Himself living inside you, you're choosing to align yourself with a greater truth than your fleshly response. You're choosing to align yourself with Jesus inside you, the love that He has for this person. So what I'm challenging you to do is to Ask God, Lord, help me to see this person the way that you see them. Help me to love them the way you love them. Help me to see the gold instead of all the junk that, 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 that is hard to live with. Lord, help me to love them and value them the way that you do. And watch God change your heart. I mean, I've experienced this so many times over the years as I have as I've had somebody I maybe didn't get on with at first, but I've asked God, Lord, help change my heart, help me love this person, and just started treating them with love and kindness. And over time, my heart changed, and I began to value them and care for them and, and actually enjoy them in a way that I never would have initially thought would be possible. So to close today, I want to challenge you to think of somebody that you struggle to love. And maybe view that person as God's divine appointment for you, to expose the places where you've got some hard edges in your life, to expose those places where, you know, where, where you, you know, if this person wasn't in your life, you wouldn't see that maybe you have some unloving places in your heart, but instead choose to see them as God's gift to you to help you learn to love. And, and start by just asking God for his eyes to see them, that you, you, you ask him for his love for them. Lord, give me your love for this person. Change my heart. Give me this love for him. And then use your imagination. Say, Lord, show me how to love this person. Show me how to care for this person. What, what does love require of me with this person? Maybe it's just talking to them, like saying good morning or something. Maybe, maybe you need to have them over for a meal. Maybe you need to go apologize and repent. Maybe you need to, um, I don't know, the, the, the applications are endless. But, but what does love require of you in this situation? What, if you did love this person, what would be the action you would take? And then go do it. Whether you feel like it or not, go and do it. And as you do, you're going to find that God begins to work in your heart. And, you, and, and you're going to experience a change of heart towards this person, but a sense of joy, a sense of fellowship with the Holy Spirit. You know, when I, when I am around some of those people that maybe I didn't love at first but have grown to love, there is a sense of the joy of the Lord in that that comes, that, that, just, that, that I delight in. And I, wanna, I want you guys to experience that for yourself. There's something about learning to love people that God delights in. So let's do that as a church. Let's learn to love people like Jesus did. Let me pray for you. 
Heavenly Father, I confess we are often so bad at loving. We are often sloppy in our relationships. And, and as a result, we've been hurt and we've hurt other people and we've hurt our witness to a watching world. God, we repent of that. And Lord, I pray for everyone who's listening today that God, every one of us has somebody that we struggle to love. And Lord, I pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see them in the way that you see them. And God, I pray that you would help us to, to, to begin to take those steps of love regardless of what we're feeling. Show us what it is that we need to do to extend love and kindness and compassion towards that person. Show us how we can be the hands and feet of Jesus in this situation. Holy Spirit, anoint our imaginations to know what that next step is with that individual, whoever he or she is. And God, I ask that over the course of this series, you would help us learn to love in the same sacrificial, unconditional way that you did. Help us not to be imprisoned by our emotions and our feelings or buy into the myth that we have to feel loving in order to act loving. God, help us to rise above and love anyway. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are going to help us do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. To listen to more messages like this one, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk forward slash podcast. We are looking forward to seeing you soon.